everyone, welcome to a new episode of Skeptically Inclined Science. My name is Evan. Hello, and my name is Tom. I uh, hope you are doing well today, wherever you are. Uh, today, on today's episode, I'm going to talk about forensic genealogy, looking into how genealogy websites are kind of being used now in helping to solve violent crimes. So hopefully you will find it interesting, as I did. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and yeah, it's my first episode where I'm going to be talking about non-COVID main headline stories. So exciting Fine times. And um, what are you going to talk about, Tom? <laughs> yeah. Hi, everybody. So I put two papers uh, on Instagram to hear the people. And most of them vote. Most of the people voted for a paper t- titled a gene therapy for inherited blindness. So um, this is what I'm going to talk about. I could get a little... Uh, little technical but i trust evan will keep me in check so it won't get it won't get too complex nice you give the people what they want i give people what they want yes to address maybe why we uh were an episode a week behind in our episodes so yeah i had to get tested for covid last weekend and i was feeling very awful so we decided we would just postpone it this this week just because yeah. uh, I don't think I was in really a great frame of mind to record. Uh, but we're back now and, and I was negative, good. so it was fine. <laughs> yeah, that's the most important thing. It was, uh, so, I hate I, that I, and I've, I've talked about this already, but the, yeah, the test is just awful. And even most people say it's about the nose, but I really find it's the throat that I just hate because the throat, like they're, they're like, you have to go, ah, uh, and then they're like, they really ram it down your throat like <laughs> and swabbing it and it's just like and i literally she pulled it out and i was like coughing so yeah it's not pleasant i find with the nose as well though it's like they're literally just they just put the the swab in like you just have to sit there and i know it's uncomfortable but they do all the work whereas with the throat it's like you have to open your throat as wide as possible and you have to try and manage that and if they're not happy they'll make you do it again so yeah it's just just awful but and i think the problem is now and i'd say this is happening in most of europe and north america where there's a change in the season so it's kind of getting colder and i think it's just natural that you kind of might get a a cold or something and like the symptoms so overlap it's just so easy to mix the two up and they have to rule out covid now so it's just going to be insane amount of tests is going to have to be carried out now this is this is the second time you were you had a COVID scare, right? Is there yeah. any difference between the first time you were tested and this time? Um, no, it wasn't th- that much different. There wasn't that much of a difference, really. I like it. it the, this for this test, like I, it was on a fr- like basically because I work in the hospital and I rang in to, to with the symptoms, and I had to fill out a form and they're like, "Do you have COVID symptoms?" I said, "No," because I didn't think they were, but. Yeah. They rang me and they're like, oh, what's your symptoms? And I was like, I kind of just have a feel d- dizziness or fogginess in my head and kind of bit of aches. And she's like, okay, we're going to change it to yes. <laughs> and <laughs> then basically he's like, yeah, you're just having to get tested. Like any one symptom now is just enough to get tested. And I really don't right. know. Maybe I, I suppose they want to capture as much as they possibly can. And I suppose back in April and March, they didn't have the capacity but I really mm-hmm. think maybe they should go back to two symptoms or something like that. Because I didn't think I was at any risk of having it because I wasn't in contact with anyone I knew. 
and I wasn't really in close contact with people I didn't know. So I don't know. It's just right. it seems a bit extreme, but yeah. Again, I suppose they really just want to rule out so anything, you, any any chance. So you were just kind of feeling under the weather, but mm. you kind of knew in your head that is uh, this is not COVID. Yeah. This is just some sort of. It was just something. It that was more pass. as well. Like, it was a Friday. I just wanted to. I like. I was like, if I take the Friday off and then I have. I'll have three days to kind of more recover, but like now you have yeah. to like let people know what your symptoms are. It's 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 all so, it's well, such how the whole process now is different. Like you're afraid and you need to call in sick. You're like, oh, they're gonna have to make me get tested for it. I so know. you're gonna become stigmatized or something. Well, I don't I don't really care about that. It's more uh, I just don't want to have to get the test because it's awful. Yeah, and um, so you get the nose and the throat, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and no uh, no blood work for antibodies or anything like that. No. Just all molecular. Yeah. I got the I had the antibody test done and I was negative and that wasn't the you were negative. So okay. Um, yeah. What was the turnaround time? Uh, that was it was pretty good. Like I got the t- result on Monday morning, so it was like just under two days. Okay. I think obviously because I'm a health care worker, they might have pr- prioritized it because they want to get you back to work. Right. Um, but are you happy that you can use your white man <laughs> privilege? <laughs> Yeah, I'm. I'm. I recognize my <laughs> privileged position. Um. Yeah. So, anyways, how any news with you? Well, the only thing that happened to me was that my stem cells got contaminated. I had oh, to God. terminate my differentiation. Then I had to. I had to attempt to rescue them. And this morning, I went to the lab. I look at them, and uh, I think I successfully rescued them. Wow. They're looking nice. They're growing. There's a beautiful monolayer of iPSCs. And tomorrow I'm gonna go back in again, and I I can start uh, another experiment. I can seed them again and start differentiation. Mm-hmm. So that's maybe give news. some context little... to how long they actually take to differentiate. Sure. So the protocol we use right now it's uh, it's not a it's not secret. It's available online. Huh. Uh, it takes thirty days with daily medium change. So if you you're like twenty days or twenty five days into it, and then you contaminate yourselves, I was it uh, would yeah. it, so it, it kills pick... you. I it really does because yeah. there's no going back, and you have to start all over again. Not really. I was lucky enough that I took pictures every day when I was changing the medium, so we were able to trace back the start of the contamination oh, wow. roughly, roughly around day twenty, maybe after day twenty. And the whole differentiation is thirty days, so I was really more than half halfway through, and we had to stop it because you know once you have the bacterial cells there, they kind of start releasing their toxins or their metabolites, and that causes the cells to actually detach from the well, hmm. and they were just floating. Yeah. So there was no point even carrying it on. But we managed to rescue some of them, like the better looking clones. And uh, we, uh, from the clones that were not yet differentiated, so they were like pure iPSCs, we, uh, we managed to rescue some of them. Uh, we plated them into, into a fresh plate. We gave them a, a good dose of antibiotics. We washed them. And now they are uh, they growing and they looking healthy and they looking happy. So, so it was a news. successful rescue. I was so down. I was like, "That's it. That's another month yeah. wasted." But yeah, my supervisor were like, "No, let's let's try to rescue them. Maybe this is maybe this is gonna work." And it did. So uh, yeah, again, so, yeah, they just have the expertise, mm. and um, so I rely on them. Um, but I was yeah, I was I'm happy now again. And did you hear as well that TikTok was banned in America? Yes, that was just just happened recently. Yeah, right? I think it was either yesterday when we were recording it on Friday. So I'm saying you're somewhat happy as well that 
your you had this rant wasn't a TikToker as you were, you were hearing. Yeah, I so. did. I don't like TikTokers. So they, now, yeah, where are they bad. going to all go? Where will they go to YouTube? All this. Uh, doesn't does the Instagram have the equivalent of TikTok? I think it's called Reels or something like that. Yeah, but I don't know. Is that even mm. taken off or anything? I don't know. The it's only good it... thing that came out of TikTok was Uncle Roger. Huh. Uh, you should check it out, people. Yeah. Check Uncle Roger. He 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 did a video about rice and cooking rice, like using a rice cooker. And <laughs> yes. yeah, every time, because I always cook my rice in a saucepan, and I remember he's like, <laughs> saucepan. World War Two is over. <laughs> I, yeah. Why are you using a saucepan? And I'm like, <laughs> like I'm in Ireland. Seriously, I know. I was just. I'm using saucepan as well for my rice. Yeah, like, <laughs> check your privilege. Check your Some of us don't have rice cookers. Not that fancy. Yeah, and it costs like 40 or 60 euro to get it. In fairness, I think they are game changers, really. So, um, yeah. And speaking as well, the rice. The, before we go into the headlines, um, yeah, Dublin again was put into level three kind of lockdown today since oh, midnight. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. basically, um, bars and restaurants you only if only they have outdoor seating can open and it's only limited to 15 people so basically yeah we went for i went for a drink with my friend last night and i was like this is it but we won't be having another baby to go for a drink realistically for another three weeks outdoor how, uh, how annoying is that mm, yeah and it's like it's getting colder now so outdoor seating is really just kind of you just need a big jacket and gloves if you want to even do that <laughs> out of interest do you think Okay, so obviously the lockdown is again that level three is was introduced because there was increasing cases, right? Yeah, that's that's what it happened. Okay, but do you think it's because there is a second wave that we can do nothing about, or do you think it's because the way it was handled by the people in power resulted in the increased um, spikes? No, because I I don't. Second wave. I I really think it's happening everywhere in Europe, and I really don't know. I don't think there was a huge amount they could really do. So. Um, like I think people are saying it maybe is an overreaction that things are still relatively low, but the problem is with this virus is that it's so exponential and that like it can be low now, but if you don't do it, it just goes up so quickly. It's a bit like when you f- it's like um if you're filling a bu- a bucket with exponential water like drops of water, it's like it's only when it's basically like when it's halfway, then it it'll, it when it exponentially goes again, it fills the whole bucket. So if you don't stop mm. it now, it just will go ma- into overdrive. So I suppose they kind of need to to kind of nip it in the bud now. Um, okay. So yeah, well, it's not. It's, it's I, I really I, like. In fairness, I think there has been problems with communicating and being clear about what their decision process is and all that. But honestly, it's it, it's tough. It's a tough. It's tough or everyone um it's very it's, it's quite hopeless i think for a lot of people that they're like when is this going to end especially going into winter so all i can say is anyone who's feeling if anyone's listening and feeling really like hopelessness and stuff like please just reach out to someone everyone's in the same boat and i hope that you can yeah. like just try and find strength to try and get through this and w- we'll get through it together eventually yeah or stop complaining because your complaints are not gonna change anything and just okay yeah survival of the fittest yeah okay um on that note then we'll just go into our headlines before the week so what did you want to talk about so my headline is uh microbial life on venus 
I thought it was really interesting. So basically, I don't know if people know, but Venus is the second planet in the solar system. They call it's it a very um, they, they call it Earth's twin. Yes, because it's very similar, um, except for the this, really thick atmosphere. Uh, a, Yes, but it's uh, in the same way, it's very um, rocky and the surface of the planet is not really hospi hosp hospitable. They say that there is like sulfuric, sulfuric acid rains and it's a uh, sulfuricating CO2 atmosphere. So uh, not, really, um, not really a beautiful place, although the goddess of the beauty was called after that planet. <laughs> so, you know, well, it doesn't matter. Anyway. They, uh, the scientists, uh, in the way that I can't really understand, but they, they say that they detected a biosignature, which for Earth, Earth a biosignature in the atmosphere would be like the levels of um, oxygen. Mm. Uh, Venus doesn't have oxygen, but they detected phosphine gas uh, in the atmosphere of Venus. They say that phosphine could be in there as a result of microbial um, metabolism, mm. and they could be releasing this. And this actually dates back all the way to 1967 when Carl Sagan uh, raised the possibility that there are some microbial organisms in the, in the atmosphere that can, uh, in the Venus atmosphere that can, re that can release the, um, this phosphine gas. So this is a real uh, possibility that there is extraterrestrial life huh. in the solar system. It, that they don't, the, the people who wrote this paper they are not claiming that it's an actual life, but just imagine if it is. Yeah. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. I think they were, I, when I read the headline, I think people, it was really, like, trying to, like, really make the claim, oh, there is um, extraterrestrial life, but it was just, like, they basically find uh, these traces. So there's still a lot of um, the other things that need to be confirmed before they can really make the claim. But I suppose it's still yeah. promising. But isn't that what, like, because they say, like, obviously on the surface of Venus is so in, inhospitable, but they reckon that if you go up into the atmosphere that it actually isn't as bad and that there's actually enough oxygen there that technically maybe we could, um, or is there, is that true actually? Is there oxygen in the atmosphere? I think it's, it's, it's hospitable enough that they think they were trying to maybe put the claim of putting floating cities in the atmosphere of Venus and that could maybe be oh, used. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I heard something like that as well. So mm. um, well, if this was the case that there was actually something up there, then like microbes and that just shows that maybe yeah. um, is, there is also it, it is hospitable for humans. Maybe There is also a possibility that there could be, a, because there was a number of satellites sent to Venus and there could be, there is a risk of that the satellite was contaminated and whatever is being picked up there is, was just brought over, the microbes brought over from Earth. That's, that could also be one of the explanations, although I oh. don't think it's a very... I don't think the microbes would survive the no. journey. And it's but, not um, like they were just floating in the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, so, I don't, I don't know. Normally, normally on Earth, you kind of... To create phos uh, phosphine gas, you have, you have like a very strong lightning. When the lightning strikes the Earth, that's when the bulk of the phosphine gas is being produced. But there are also some, some microorganisms that live in the sewage sludge. And within that sewage sludge, they, did, they were able to detect the phosphine gas. So that's why they think that the microbes mm. are capable of producing it. And um, yeah, yeah. There's, still a, there's still a lot to be confirmed. But uh, yeah, it is there super. Is yeah. So just 
the extraterrestrial life is quite different than what would have imagined or what the Hollywood have yeah. portrayed so far. It's not like big, big, weird looking aliens. It could be just single organism. Mm. That's a which is quite which is more realistic if you think about it. Yeah. If you're gonna find something. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if they to watch the to monitor this. Um it'd be mm. crazy to think like they found did find life on venus before mars which is like because everyone was like it has to be mars and in fairness i would definitely be thinking it would be mars but i don't know much about life on mars all i know is there is a water there but i don't think they have any like hard evidence they did definitely didn't have any biosignatures detected right they just speculate because of the yeah well it would make it's just like with water it has there's always generally life so yeah. yeah we'll see good old water Anyway, we welcome our <laughs> outer space overlords. So do come over if you exist. Hopefully, you're listening to skeptically. Yes, please save us. Um, do you have uh, anything? Yeah. Uh, so uh, one of the stories I wanted, like quick headlines, I wanted to talk about that I seen um, was about does everyday googling affect our brains? So to give some context, okay. Google receives 3.5 billion searches every day. So that averages roughly 20 to 30 searches per person per day how many times do you think you use google a day <laughs> during oh your work in, it from count, university it's countless it's countless because Infinite. I, so, i'm sometimes i just google the simplest things because i'm not sure yeah so i i think every 10 minutes if i'm at my desk really wow i think so yeah unless Crazy. yeah even when i'm writing something because sometimes i feel dumb i have to check spellings and stuff like that yeah so yeah um, a lot of times yeah so uh, the way our brains have evolved is to sport efficient attention, memory, and goal-oriented behavior. Yeah, we don't like react on stimulus. So, in order to serve these functions, the, yeah, it's the prefrontal cortex part of our brains got bigger, and this way we learn by trial and error, and then we store the information, and generally we pass this down then to the next generations who generally keep the important information for optimal problem solving. However, because of Google efficient brain storage is not as important as it used to be so researchers at columbia university showed that when we're faced with difficult questions our first thought is to go to our electronic device from which we <laughs> google the answer we desire it's not like we don't think kind of logically anymore we're like oh i'm just gonna look it up and also interestingly when we are sure that we will have future access to google the likelihood of recalling relevant information drops I'm sure you kind of like if someone tells you something and then you're like oh yeah and you don't really listen you're like oh I just can find out how through Google you just don't <laughs> tend to remember and also yeah. while we tend to forget the info itself we put effort into recalling where the info is stored online but I suppose at the same time you have history now so you're generally just like where what was I looking at yeah um, you kind of cover but they this can have traceable effects in our brains so just six days of repeated web searches are enough to reduce the activations in our brains and long-term memory. And when accustomed to repeated online searching, our brains lose efficiency in processing info and need, wide fed, and need widespread activation to skim through a, a piece of digital text because we just like want the short, quick answers. So yeah, Googling actually is affecting the way our brains are working and how they um how they perform so yeah it's it's uh, a bit crazy but now i'm thinking we are not the same people that were 
50, 60 years ago. No. Right? Well, so listen, is this is to is this is to our advantage? We don't need we like because we live in the in the in the day and age that we do. Do we do our brains still need to have this capability if all we need is just is just fed to us? Maybe maybe this is just a consequence of the times we live in, and our brain can kind of you just don't know what into the, a different avenue. You just don't know what the the long term effects that that it have. And, and 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 it's really crazy like we're we're still very only recently evolved from like cavemen and stuff so really uh like a lot our bodies still yeah again made to like go be a hunter gatherer so like the effects of that mm-hmm. is still really important on our body physiology so it's interesting like what it does it would it have any long-term effects this it's be interesting to see so thought it was interesting hopefully it wouldn't be any bad long-term effect well it would be bad if out of the sudden all the internet would be shut down or be some major yeah then we're electricity shortcut and we would lose internet and electricity forever Mm. then it would probably be very hard to adjust into the the new way of life Mm. yeah but now i don't know where we i suppose we have to wait sit and wait right Yeah. yeah exactly Okay, so that was kind of a news that I have yeah. for today. Do you have anything? The only else? thing uh, I else have, I just—it's not a news. It's just before we go into the main stories, I just wanted—I mm-hmm. had mentioned again that yeah, convalescent plasma had their emergency authorized use, and I just wanted to go quickly over this because I don't think I really made it clear the last time I talked about it. How I mm-hmm. still think this is crazy. How it has emergency use within the within America. So yeah, because until this emergency actually use had been implemented, the treatment was regulated under the FDA's expanded access treatment, which required individual patient authorization and collection of data on clinical outcomes and side effects. So basically, when they give this to patients before emergency use, they would have to record side effects, what the clinical outcomes were, and how effective in it was. And over the fi- over five months, this protocol served over two two thousand seven hundred hospitals and enrolled over 100,000 patients, and they wanted to establish efficacy and safety. But the the problem that was just so... I don't understand how they couldn't have done this. There was no control data from any of the patients that were treated without convalescent plasma. So they had so many patients they could have been looking to carry, and they could have carried out a randomized controlled trial, and they never thought to do this, because then they could have published and for definitely say if there is an effect or not and at the end of it they even just said the fda judged that convalescent plasma and this quotations may be effective now it's being used in all patients in the u.s but the important thing is now because it's emergency use it means that doctors and hospitals no longer are obliged to report data on clinical outcomes and only requirement is to report deaths so they don't even know how effective it is now or if any there's any side effects the li- hold on hold on they don't have to report side effects yeah this emergency use now means they don't have to report side effects related to transfusion to this transfusion okay that's and and that's the law not the law you can still report it if you want it's just that you don't, have, you don't have to, to. that's the pro- oh, wow. that's the issue and like they basically the trials that they used to come to 
to, to, so there are only two randomized controlled trials carried out. And these two trials that the FDA is using as evidence, they, they combined were only 189 participants. And that's still way underpowered for trying to see if it, the convalescent plasma is efficient or not. And you couldn't even combine these two trials if you wanted because they're different protocols. But yeah, like they were, they were using this study, these two studies that were underpowered that you can't really make a lot of concrete based claims because it doesn't have enough people in it. It's just crazy to me that you don't have to report. So they're using a study that's not really enough powered and they don't have to report side effects anymore. And so they really don't ha- not really know if it's still effect- effective or not because there's no randomized control trial, which is what you need. And because of this emergency use, there's, it's going to be even more difficult to recruit participants for randomized control trials because it's already being used. So yeah. they're, u- ba- they're basically using this treatment when they don't really know if it's effective or not. So I just t- wanted to highlight this again that I really don't understand how it's being used when there's not like a really significant studies to show that it actually is effective. It's so... so- it's so weird that it's being used so close to the election and it's is it just in state the uh, i don't use? like they, well in the uk they're doing that i've mentioned this already the recovery trial oh, yeah. so they're actually doing a randomized control trial so i'll be i that's where so, i wanted to see how what they say yeah. what if it's effective or not because at the moment there's not enough concrete proof from what the fda have shown that it is effective it's like maybe effective but they're just going to use it anyways and i'm just like they they're acting like there's nothing else they can give them whereas there is still a few other treatment options like dexamethasone yeah. and I suppose remdesivir uh, um yeah so it just it just crazy to me yeah no no you you know you you're absolutely right and everything that is covid related in terms of treatment and therapy and what's not when it's coming from states and from the F- fda i uh, this is just my feelings and you know everybody has their own feelings but i just feel suspicious or not trusting to them because of this whole situation that is going on Mm. with the elections and what's not and the big promise of vaccine coming in literally weeks if not days before the general election it's just it all seems forced to create this illusion of being handled yeah it's crazy like i I hear him he's at these press conferences and he's like we're ready to distribute the the vaccine when it's ready and it's basically like it's the equivalent of your delivery saying oh i'm ready to deliver the food when you have it cooked the cook the food hasn't even been like properly made yet or anything yeah so like what's the point of announcing i have the delivery driver ready when the food isn't even ready like doesn't make any sense yeah it's just you know it's just saying it for the sake of saying it to to create this atmosphere of doing something yeah you know and We're especially now when the tapes came out when yeah he admitted that he downplayed the whole situation yeah, yeah. but i thought like why are there people not on the street and yeah he and two two hundred thousand people have died and not yeah. even a mention of us i was like could would you not have like a day of mourning for all the people that have died it's just like no it's another day like how is it how are people not completely gone outraged about this like two hundred thousand people no one can even like you can't your brain can't even physically realize how big that number is and that's underestimating as well and seeing how okay with this they are like it's crazy i don't know if they're okay but 
there's I just, think it's just because it's the election and they're like, well, come on, we'll just vote him out and we'll get him out of here and then that's it. It's crazy. But there's, you have so many things going on there right now. The uh, you know the the Black Lives Matter m- uh, movement, the uh, wildfires because of the gender reveal parties. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, so uh, the I think was there earthquakes. Joe Rogan moving to Texas. <laughs> it's all big things, you know. Yeah. Okay. I think we've been yeah. long enough on the headlines. So <laughs> I think I think you're so right. So yeah. if you want to go on to our main story, then what did you? Yeah. What is the so just gonna start with the title of the paper and then i'm gonna use evan to help me explain different parts that this paper touches upon and i think there is loads of innovation in this paper so the title is a gene therapy for inherited blindness using deactivated cas vpr mediated transcriptional activation so the title in itself is like complex but we're gonna break it down but before we break this down i just want to spend a second to appreciate how great eyes are <laughs> and um eyes are so, so underappreciated so underappreciated first eye appeared 541 million years ago so how how what? how did they know that <laughs> the the fossilized the f- fossils of animal called trilobites they were able to they detected like um it wasn't a fully functional eye that me and you have they, but they detected like a spot that were able to distinguish between light and and dark okay so that's how they kind of uh, detected and they just trace it back and uh but just imagine the life before we had eyes you know like imagine you went out drinking you wake up the next day everything is sluggish you don't really want to open your eyes <laughs> you judge everything by touch everything is soft and slow and then first predators start developing eyes life becomes a little bit more active a little bit more predatory and then there is always arm race so once the predators have eyes then the prey have to start have to start developing eyes as well so they can avoid them so it was a very dynamic process and the and the evolution of eye was so complex that back in the 1802 english clergyman called william pally was using the a watchmaker argument which in his opinion it was a the evolution of eye is so complex and so impossible that it has to be the proof of the existence of the one lord that wow. rose all over us. That they had yeah. to. So well, let's say. Yeah. Well played, uh, William Paley. <laughs> but uh, obviously that didn't work out. Now we know <laughs> that the eyes were able to develop in multiple different species. Mm. Uh, so it was not just the one species that started developing eyes and then they just differentiated into different animals. It started independently in different, in different species. And now there is, I think, 13 different phylas of living organisms on earth and i think three i think three or five of them have developed eyes and the one that have eyes are abundant on earth so everything mm. that doesn't really have eyes maybe except plants uh well plants are not <laughs> animals so everything that doesn't have eyes it's really is not as abundant as the organisms that are able to you know differentiate light from mm. darkness so basic so there so, yeah so just it shows like how uh, how crucial mm. eyes are but anyway, back to the project. So You've yeah, convinced me. Yes. <laughs> a gene therapy for inherited blindness using DCAS9 VPR mediated transcriptional activation. I think what we should start with is what is the CAS9 uh, system. So yeah. um, normal CAS9 is a molecular scissors that are able to edit DNA permanently. Is that correct? Yeah, so they use it in CRISPR-Cas, the new technology. Using the CRISPR-Cas, exactly. But here we have deactivated Cas9. So Cas9 on its own is a protein. So you can even have it deactivated. 
does means the Cas9 is not able to conduct its uh, its uh, its function. So it doesn't uh, it doesn't cut anymore the DNA. But in this example, they're using the deactivated Cas9 as a as a carrier, and they they ligated three transcriptional activators. Their names are transcriptional activators VP64, P65, and RTA, which is the shortcut of VPR. And they were able to use these transcriptional activators, which were attached to the Cas9, to transcriptionally activate genes that are not expressed in retina cells. So and now I feel like I have to explain this yeah. as well. So maybe, so, yeah, tr so uh, why would they need to uh, get genes expressed in the retina that aren't normally expressed? So inherent blindness is caused by non-functional genes in an eye. Yeah. So in your retina. If you have non-functional genes, yeah, in retina. The idea behind this is there are, there are multiple genes that carry out the same function, but they're not necessarily expressed in the same cell. So I, as I earlier used the example of ABCA4, so this is the gene that I'm working on, but you have multiple different ABCA genes from one, two, three, four, et cetera. But ABCA4 is just expressed in the retina. But, if, but there is also, the genetic material is also in the retina to express ABCA1, which can perform the same function or similar function to ABCA4, which means that it can compensate. But our body was designed in such a way that only specific genes are expressed in specific tissue. So now they, these guys want to use this deactivated Cas9 VPR system to upregulate genes that normally are not expressed in the retina. And by doing so, they can restore or partially restore the function of the gene that is not active. Mm. Is that clear? Yeah, that's, that's clear. Very, yeah. very super cool. Like. Yeah, I think that's just the idea of it was really cool. So they started their work in the, in the cells because before you move to the animals, you have to have a groundwork done in cells. And um, the, the genes, the, the, the disease they used was a retinitis pigmentosa, which is, um, which is inherited blindness disease, affecting rods. So rods are not being produced. Rhodopsin is not being produced. And rhodopsin is a, is a fluorophore that absorbs photon. And then there is a propagation of the signal until the vision is created. So I think, I think that's enough detail for that. In, in rods, which are the photoreceptor cells in the uh, RP disease, the rhodopsin is not being expressed. So their idea was to use this deactivated Cas9 to express gene of similar function, which is opsin, but opsin is being expressed in con. So in, in rods, you have rhodopsin, and in cons, which is a different type of photoreceptor, you have cons. And rods, rods are responsible for kind of a dim vision, cons are responsible for color vision. So there is a difference, but still they're able to perform similar function because light is being absorbed and, and the signal will be propagated. They use this deactivated Cas9 first in the, in the cells and they introduce the Cas9 system and they measure the expression of the opsin gene mRNA. And it was very, very promising. They used single guide RNA to guide the deactivated Cas9 to the promoter of the opsin, so it could be upregulated. And uh, for the control, they used lac operon. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but lac, lac operon is being expressed in bacterial yeah. cells, so it shouldn't be expressed in humans. And when they used the lac operon single guide RNA, there was, no, there, was, there was nothing. So therefore, they know that any action is due to the single guide RNA guiding the, the Cas into the appropriate region of the genome rather than 
the Cas9 doing something on it. So the Cas9 mm-hmm. system was able to, in the rod and cone cells, it helps the, express what yeah. gene is it? Opsin. Opsin, and they, that's not expressed yeah. in either of them normally. That's not expressed in rods normally. It isn't common. So they want to just look at rods and seeing if they can get it to be expressed. Yeah. Yeah, so, but they started with the uh, mouse embryonic fibroblasts because these these cells don't really express opsin. Mm. First of all, they wanted just to have a proof of concept that they are able to transactivate yeah, genes yeah. that is not normally expressed in the cell type. So they did that and they did the mRNA expression, but when they tried to detect protein, because at the end of the day, you really want the protein to be there to have a, to have a function, they were not able to detect proteins. So that was kind of like, mm, they didn't really feel good about it. But anyway, they carry on with the experiments and they detected at what concentration the DCAS9 VPR single guide RNA complex have to be transfected into the cells to reach the maximum mRNA response. So they did all of these optimization studies. And at the end, they did go into animal studies. And the first they tried in the wild type mice, so completely healthy mice. They target, they use the recombinant AAV as a vector to introduce the DCAS9 VPR system with the single guide RNA for opsin. And I think if you, when you use the recombinant AAV, you can more or less target it specifically to reach uh, rot cells rather than cons. Because, you know, AAV, it's uh, based on virus, so you can, uh, you can readjust it so it just, affect, just infects the rots and not the cons. In the, once the cell, when it was done in the wild type mice, they, they detected the, um, the expression of opsin, the transcript level were observed in, in the eyes, exposed to the system compared to the saline injected eyes. So one mice is being injected with the therapeutic and the other, one eye is being injected with the therapeutic and the other eye of the mouse is being injected with saline just for the control. So the upregulation was detected by RNA sequencing, but in vivo, when they did it in mice, they were actually able to, to pick up the protein. So the protein was not created in, in the cells. cells, but when they went to the mice, they were able to, to pick up protein, the opsin protein, which is like really cool. And it was a really strong signal. And they did electrophysiology on it as well, just to, just to see if not, it's not enough that you have the protein, you want to see if it's functional. Yeah. So they did all of this kind of electrophysiology assessments and it was, it was functioning. So they then said, okay, it works in the wild type mice. Let's do it in the mice that, has, that is heterogeneous for rhodopsin. And the reason is heterogeneous and not, and not homo, uh, homogeneous for deactivated rhodopsin is because when you completely don't have rhodopsin, you don't, really, you don't really have rods as well. But you have to have rods in order for them to be rescued. So that's why they used heterozygote. What does, so, so heterozygous he- is when it's only one express, it has one, one of your, yeah, you have one one your allele. chromosomes is expressed in it. Yeah, you have one allele that express rhodopsin and the other one doesn't. And in the hetero, heterozygote mice, the rods are still expressed, but they're a little bit kind of uh, short, not, 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 like, not healthy, but they are still there. So they use the same thing. They use the recombinant AAV vector to inject the DCAS9 VPR system into the eye. And they waited a year after treatment, <laughs> a whole year, to see if there is some sort of retina degeneration or is it retina degradation or is it stable or is it improved and they used a thing called optical coherence tomography to measure the thickness of the outer layer of the retina and they concluded that 
the treatment is capable of delaying the degeneration of retina. And this was also confirmed by other means through a histological examination. So they conducted two different assessments and they showed that using this deactivated Cas9 VPR system delivered by the recombinant AAV into a heterozygote mice delayed the degradation of retina tissue compared to the mice that was not, not treated. With these heterozygous mice, they, mm. so the one allele that wasn't expressed in it, they, this, this Cas9 helps it being expressed. That's what yeah, the aim so was. It was to get it, the one, the, in the allele that wasn't expressed, it was to get it expressed in again. Not really, because you, they, they choose the heterozygote mice because you have to have rot for, for them to be rescued. Because yeah. if they use homozygote mice, there is, no, there is no rot, so there is nothing to rescue. So like when you do genetic treatment, you have to remember that you have to have a target. If you have a disease that completely destroys the cell type, then there is nothing, not, nothing to rescue anymore. So that's but why so, like, like, but they uh, ha- so they have the rods. Yeah, but the rods are being continuously degraded with the longer you get, the older you live. Your, your, your rods are being degraded. Your vision oh. becomes progressively worse. So these, pe- these mice weren't blind or anything. They were just you know, healthy mice. Y- yeah, I can't answer this truthfully. I have to ask my supervisors about because I don't really know much about mice animal models. But I would imagine because they have rods, they, not, they might not be completely blind, but they probably their vision is not as good as would be with the healthy mice. Okay, so they're yeah they were so they were just basically measuring to see age related like vision issues, not like yeah. disease related. Well, they 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 treated the mice with the therapeutic. I think fourteen days after they be, they were born and stuff mm. like that. So they really tried to do it as soon as possible, because it is a fact that the later even with humans, the later especially for eye diseases that cause progressive degradation of, um, of retina, the later you start the genetic treatment or molecular treatment, the less chance there is for mm. success. It for all sense. depends on what degree of the photoreceptors are already gone. Mm. Because photoreceptors, they don't uh, proliferate. They don't divide. Yeah. Once you have them, you have them. Once you lost them, you lost them. And that's it. Mm. So that's why it's like, crucial to detect early stages of disease so you can implement the molecular treatment quick enough. Another option is to do cellular treatment where you kind of reintroduce rods or photoreceptors into the eye. But I don't know much about that way. All I know here is that based on the uh, transactivation of opsin in rods, which is normally not expressed there, they were able to, to activate um, opsin in rods. After a year, after one year waiting, they, they, they showed that the degradation of the retina is not as severe as it is without mm, the treatment okay. um, they also showed that there is um there is an improvement in vision in these mice so it is not only halts the degradation but also helps them to see a little bit better they shine different lights at them at different wavelengths and you know all the brain activity was recorded and that kind of um, because you can't ask mice do you see this do <laughs> yeah. you see that you know, they had to use read, this kind le- of, uh, read the letters. <laughs> yeah, read the letters. You can't, you can't do that. So um, they found a considerable expression of transactivate opsin in the rods of the injected animals. Uh, they also did some immune labeling to see if this treatment would implicate some sort of immune response, and there was non-immune response. So that's a good sign. 
eye in its own is very immune privilege organ, so it's uh, perfect for this kind of treatment. I think the whole paper overall was really good. There is, a, there is another candidate for gene treatment, which is like just the concept of using ca- deactivated Cas9 and, and to use it kind of to activate a genes that are not normally expressed yeah. in, the, in the tissue. It's, it's like, I thought it was fantastic because you usually hear use of the Cas9 system just to kind of cut mm. and paste. And this is a, this is a little bit different. Um, so it was really good. And the only thing that I can say is they didn't, they, they didn't really talk much about the off-target effect, whether the single guide RNA can latch itself maybe to some other promoter and, you know, start activating and, um, and the whole system can start activating some other genes. They didn't really mention much about that. But are they, so, are uh, they planning to maybe even go into clinical trials with this? They said this is, they, in the paper, they said this is a, a great first step towards the uh, introduction of this treatment into the clinical trials. But as I said, there, I, think, I think the off-target effect have to be analyzed a little bit better. They, um, there, is a, there is a couple things that could be, could be fine-tuned. I think the, how they're going to translate the concentrations, um, how they're going to figure out the, the transfection of the DCAS9 mm. system into the eye. Because right now, because of the size of the whole complex, they had to split it in half and use two different AAVs. Oh. And then once you do that inside the eye, they had to relegate together. So this is kind of like risky system. How did so they I do that? Do you know? There is a, there is a way to do it. It's you have to called, like literally, I don't know actually. Yeah. It's called uh, split in technology to reconstitute AAVs. So you, you split the whole DCAS9 VPR into two parts and you lock them in two separate AAVs. Then you inject them and then through some molecular mechanism, they relegate together into a functioning mechanism. But I don't know what is the rate of success? What is the rate of not being su- successful? Mm. It was, I just thought it would be too detailed. So I kind of left that bit out because it would get into really- Yeah, yeah, into yeah. Like, That's just like, like, just like to even come up with that, you're like, okay, it's too big, so we're just going to split it up and then reattach them. And I'm like, what? That sounds like... Yeah. I'd be like, okay, Imagine. we just need to go back to the drawing board. Whereas they're like, no, we're going <laughs> to <we're laughs> no. make this work. <laughs> yeah, imagine coming up with that. But, uh, you know, it's, I don't think it's just a one person doing oh, this. Yeah. I think, no. you know, there is like people reading other people's studies and saying, I wonder if we can apply what they did for us. You know, I don't think it's just like one person doing this from the top to bottom. Or maybe it is, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think it would work mm. like that. But I think the relegation is based on how the amino acids are being split. I think there is certain, there could be like a recognition between amino acids. I think if you split them in the right, the right position, the, some molecular forces could be very strong between certain amino acids and they would just naturally relegate together at that position. I think this is... Uh, That's something that they can do, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that kind of actually does make yeah. sense. Yeah, but there is also... There must be some kind of a unsuccessful rate of yeah. this happening as well, right? You, like, I don't believe there's a 100-rate success no. of rejoining or relegation of this, of this system. But I think they have to find a better, a better carrier uh, for human trials. I don't think using two separate AAVs is a good idea. It works in mice, but then again, you know, Mice are not humans. 
yeah, so I yeah. think uh, no but it's, it's still things... super promising that like that does and like I've never heard that being ever used before um so yeah. watch this space what... Tom you heard it here first from Tom deactivated that's Cas9. what I thought this paper was really really interesting and you know there's much more detail that I thought it's kind of irrelevant yeah. or it would drag this podcast for like a five hours discussion <laughs> I think you know they have the diagrams they have the images so like that there's a solid work done on this and just to show that you can activate a gene that is not nor- not normally functioning mm. but can kind of carry out the same job as your faulty gene that can that can yeah. has there's two different use the yeah, there's, yeah, there's two there's two different ways maybe of you can go about like with genetic diseases. Like you don't have to always like cut it out. Like you can, maybe you can try and yeah, go another route. Like there is yeah. other opportunities and it's just trying to trying to design technology that can actually yeah. work. And if you could if you can use this deactivated Cas9 to activate genes, I'm sure you can use it to deactivate genes. And yeah. imagine if you have an autosomal dominant disease like Huntington's, you can use this to completely silence this uh this faulty gene uh, using the deactivated Cas9, this is what I'm thinking, you can use it to silence it and then just introduce the regular functioning gene into the system and then, you know, you use the DCAS9 to silence the mutated genes and then you use gene replacement therapy to introduce a functioning gene mm. to replace the Huntington. I think Huntington is autosomal dominant. It is, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so that was uh, that was my paper. Nice, really that interesting. Was, yeah, that was I really had, cool. I had, yeah, and you did yeah. a good job explaining it. I think hopefully everyone Thanks. understood. Today, I'm going to talk about the use of forensic genealogy in solving crimes. So I uh, put this up on uh, our Instagram uh, account mm-hmm. to see would people be happy that their submitted DNA samples uh, would be used in forensic. In solving violent crimes and it was um the results were a 50 50 split actually 50 50 um, so people are very kind of divided on whether they would like to give their information or not mm. so th- it's it's an interesting i think it's a really interesting uh area that's coming about um because of all this uh ancestry people want to know where they come from and how it's an indirect consequence of of all this so i think it's kind of interesting discussion to have so maybe when you say the genetic evidence, you mean like when people submit their DNA samples to these companies that are able to trace you back, and then the question is whether a government of like police um, police would have access to these databases. Is that what you mean? Yeah, in a way. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll get yeah. into the whole story okay. of it. Right. Uh, well, yeah, the first yeah. thing I want to say is uh, this is just one of the figures I wanted to start off with. So sixty percent. So. These sites could identify 60% of North Americans of European descent, even if they've never taken, if, even if you have never taken one of them yourselves. So this is the, the problem is that you don't have to have given a sample, but they can, if someone related to you has, they can, tra- they can trace your DNA through that, which is kind of the oh, messed wow. up because you're not giving consent to it, but they still can identify you. Um, and but this is the they? kind of the ethical... This is the the forensic websites, the the police that are want okay. to access these databases, uh, and the the genealogists themselves, how they they look and analyze where you come in this genealogy tree, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the the I'll start with the the beginning of the story or how it starts is there's these companies that are they're forensic genetic companies, and basically 
what they do is they compare suspects' DNAs to profiles and genealogy databases and then they pierce together family trees to track down alleged offenders. And I'd say the most famous one, and it was the original one, was the identification of the Golden State Killer. Did you hear about this? No? Sort of. I'm not... Yeah, you can... Yeah, you just walk me through this, yeah. So... He was, it was a, he was a serial rapist and murderer who committed a string of crimes in the 70s and the 80s. And they managed to arrest him based on uh, using genealogy websites. It was actually really interesting. Um, there's this actor, Patton Oswalt. Oswald. Do you know who he yeah. is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah His wife actually did a, does a podcast in criminology. And she talked about this um, Golden State Killer. And uh, the police reopened the case. and. Because of, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly if it was because of her, but it, she helped him reopen it. And then oh, they, that's how they managed to catch the killer. And she, it's really sad. She died, I think, of cancer. So she never got to see yeah. the, her work being, they actually finding someone for the killer. So it's kind of, oh, no. it's sad. But like, it's interesting. Yeah, it's crazy. She managed to help capture this um, infamous killer or whatever. So, so how this occurred was through uh, a genealogy website. It's called GED Match. And it's a mm-hmm. bit like Ancestry or 23 Me, but anyone can upload the results of their own DNA test. And what they do is they do this to help try and find long lost relatives. So they'll upload it and then see if there's any hits. Um, okay, and at the so... time, sorry, go on. So it's not like you send them the sample and they tell you that, or you have like, Caribbean ancestry in 15 you're 15 percent Caribbean or something like that they, um they, they submit to this to G- GED match you submit your sample to kind of find where your family members are spread mm, I think it's like something that. like that yeah yeah okay it can okay. kind of help with that as well so it's not so this is what they were had been using wasn't ancestry or 23 and me um it was just GED match this is what they're using so I don't know if your listeners um and you submitted to ancestry or 23 and me i'm not exactly sure if they're using this um mm-hmm. but i still think there's always a risk that it can happen um mm-hmm. so at the time ged match it allowed law enforcement agencies to access the profiles to help solve murders and sexual assaults unless the user specifically opted out so you had an option where you were submitting your data that you can yeah. make it available for authorities or not okay yeah so and the police then were able to use this to make arrests. Um, and to help people understand how this works, is basically, it's based on the statistical rule of genetics. So basically how a parent or a child or two siblings, it's not exact science, but they generally like share 50% of their DNA because you get half from your father, half from your mother. Mm. And then like grandparents and grandchildren share 25%, etc. So even distant relatives share small portions of your DNA, so like your SNPs really. That's how they kind of yeah. kind of uh, trace it. And they can use this to estimate how far the relationship out. And they can go as far out as fourth cousins. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah. So, back to the Golden State Killer. So, how, how did this come about? So, the, there was a genetic genealogist. God, say that five <laughs> times. Yeah, hard um, She was... Her name was Barbara Ray Venter. And she ran a business to try and trace clients' long-lost relatives. Then these California detectives, they got in contact to try and reopen the case. Uh, and they gave her, they had the samples of the killer, but they had no way of tracking if it would be useful or not. 
Mm-hmm. So she um, got had the sample and she did put it through the search engine and she found two GED match profiles that appeared second cousins to this uh, this individual. And right. they used this to work backwards and then they found the great grandparents like uh, the common ancestor. Mm-hmm. Then they move forward in time to trace descendants and then they focus within California during the times of the, when the crimes were committed. Oh, wow. She found three brothers that would match, fit the profile. So that what the police did, they stake out the brothers and the crazy thing is they go through the trash and they got a DNA sample from a cigarette butt discarded from one of the brothers and it was a match. Yeah. And the the police arrested. His name was Joseph D'Angelo, and it was the first criminal case to be solved using the technique. And so, yeah, it opened the floodgates to help solve similar cold cases. And the thing they were surprised about was because there wasn't that much negativity. It was very positive, like, "Wow, you're fi- solving serial killers." Whereas they were like, "Oh, hold on, would people not be a bit outraged that we're using private data that's been submitted for another use to solve cases?" Yeah. But because they were using it to, to, to catch a killer, then they were kind of happy. They weren't, like, as upset, sorry. I think about this as a Patriot Act version 2.0, <laughs> you know, yeah. where they're just going to have... They, they're not going to differentiate between criminal, serious criminals or petty criminals or normal c- civilians. They just... It's going to be another level of governing yeah yeah we are, this this okay you know, so the story actually just continues so it's not over here you would think okay, oh sorry. great this is uh this is what this is going to be used now for okay, this is going to be sorry. used and it's part of helping search for violent crime criminals it was interesting actually it wasn't a complete success as well they actually had chased leads from a different part of the family tree before they realized the mistake and focused on d'angelo so it wasn't like um it wasn't like they found it, it got a match, they fa- got the sample and they identified yeah. it. it. actually was a long process. So it wasn't as easy as people think. And it's not as straightforward because you have to be careful. It's not, you have to make sure you have the right person. Yeah. Um, so they, as I said, they, they floodgates open, but they actually did not stay open for too long. So this company, it's called Parabon. They sign on to investigate an assault of a 71-year-old in a Mormon meat house in a Mormon meeting house in Utah. So someone had thrown a rock through the window, climbed in and attacked her and she, as she was practicing the organ and they strangled her until she passed out. The assailant had left traces of blood at the scene and the detective in charge of the case, his name was Mark Target, made a plea to GED Match's founder for access to the database. Mm. Uh, but this was the problem because the, the submitted samples were only, it was opt out for sexual assault or murders it wasn't for like violent assaults or assault in general he needed to get access to he could have to ask the the owners to get access because he wouldn't have had it otherwise and this is the problem like if it's for murders or sexual assaults only why would you let it for just assaults so anyways they granted the the access to the to the database and so Parabon, this company, was able to provide Taggart with three possible names, one of which they recognized straight away. And the man he lived near the this man lived near the meeting house, had run-ins with the police and had a 17-year-old nephew living with him, a nephew who matched the description. So the next day, Taggart 
he obtained a DNA sample from a milk carton the suspect had thrown in the rubbish at school. Like, it's not kind of messed up that this is a, a minor as well. But they're like just yeah. getting swabs from the bin to confirm it because they can't ask. He, he can just deny it, like, and knowing that they're yeah. like going through your bins and stuff. So, yeah, this matched. This matched, and along with a follow-up swap, matched with the, the sample at the scene. So it proved enough to arrest the suspect. But this arrest triggered an immediate backlash from genealogists, privacy experts, and the wider public at this violation of DED's match agreement with users. Uh, and yeah. this was a small but very vocal minority. Yeah, so that's the thing. is like It's kind of interesting. Do you agree that you relinquish some of your own privacy by uploading your DNA profile? And I think it's especially unfair for reducing the privacy of distant relatives. I, yeah, I don't, I don't like the sound of it. Yeah. I thought I would be on board, but then after listening to your story, and I know there is a greater good at stake here. But it'll be taken advantage of. I don't of. like it. Yeah, I don't, I don't like it. So in response to the backlash, the co-founder, his name was Rogers, he required the site's millions of users to specifically opt in to law enforcement use. So before it was opt out, but now it was opt in. And overnight, these forensic genealogy websites lost their lifeblood. So their whole way of solving crimes had gone out the window. And again, so basically, yeah, it, it was a very short window, basically. And then to stay afloat, this company started using... To stay afloat, the company Parabon, it, it, its original mm -hmm. strategy was to try and predict criminal faces using the DNA samples found at scenes. And they went back to that to try and like basically look at snips uh, and to like estimate the, the hair color, the eye color, the kind of... Just to get enough detail about the face and then they can use it through algorithms to predict what the face would look like and then they could try and catch the killer that way. Um, that's I don't think we have enough time to talk about that now, but I think it's kind of interesting how yeah. how maybe this is what they're gonna uh, pivot to. But then, interestingly, last December, another forensic genealogy company announced that it had bought GED Match, and now it has roughly two hundred eighty thousand of its one point four five million DNA profiles are opted into police searches. And this is it, like, you can use these, if you've opted in, they can, like, search a lot more of your immediate family through the, through the opt-in. Because you're, you're similar, you'd have similar DNA matches and stuff like that. So it's kind of like, even though it's 280,000, it's a lot more because, yeah, it's the immediate yeah. family you can, like, look at. So when you opt in, that means you agree for authorities to use your genetic profile in a way to to trace some yeah. criminals that could be related to you or have some ge genetic similarities to your yeah. profile. Yeah, I think opt-in is the best way though. Like I think you should be allowed have a say if you want it to be used or not. And it just, that's why I kind of wanted to do that poll to see would you let them and it's like 50-50 split. So it's not as I'm, obvious for people mm, as, as it seems. I think if you have the option, I think you always should be given option and yeah. you always have the the power to say no to something but yeah i think i think th at least this gives you this this feeling that you are in power of what happens to your data or of sorts you know mm. which i think that's what people want it would be a different story if you just submit 
if you're thinking like, oh, I want to find out my lost long relatives or something like that. And like somewhere behind the scene, there's some authorities or whoever like uses your data to kind of, you know, do some other activities that you are not really aware of, regardless if it's a good or bad activity, if there's something that you're not aware of, it, it shouldn't take place. But yeah, if yeah, you can, exactly. if you can like, you know, agree to something, then once you agreed, you agreed. You know the kind yeah. of way, but it's just kind of yeah. now messed up because it's it's a comp a forensic genealogy company now owns this this uh, database this genealogy database, and the company's chief executive has said that he wants to safeguard the company's access. But what this means between comp like forensic genealogy companies and the millions of private users still remains to be seen. Uh, and it's crazy. In July, GD Match was hacked. And users' opt-out <laughs> settings were overridden for a few hours, potentially exposing their data to law enforcement searches without their consent. Uh, and in a statement, they had said that this company that they had taken down GED Match until they were sure user data was protected against potential attacks. But it all sounds like super sketchy how this happened. And I yeah. would not be surprised that they managed to get all the information of all these people's their dna basically it wouldn't be surprising me at all that this is what they decided to resort to hacking yeah it. so the u.s department of justice for now has permitted the technology is only be used in serious violent crimes such as rape murder and only after other leads have been exhausted <clears throat> and they cannot be arrested on genealogy alone conventional forensic genetics must be used to provide a conclusive match so yeah. It at the moment it's still meant to be used as a last resort, and it still needs more evidence than the way they use it in the Golden State, where they would just like they staked them out, got the DNA, and then they got a match. You need to have That's more so evidence, bad. I think, to do that. Yeah, but it's kind of messed up because I can't I can't give consent for them to like confirm the sample. They just have they can just go through the rubbish and get it. Like I still think that's super sketchy. Like, can I not that's say that's the scary? You bit. can't, you can't, because then once they can get a, can get a certain confirm it, they can just arrest you, and then they get the yeah. the proper official swab, and then they can be like, okay, yeah, you're a match. So and, and like you can't control them doing that. Yeah, yeah. You so, can't just pick up people's rubbish and you know start isolating DNA. <laughs> I know, it's yeah. Like, but the, that's the thing is, though, if it's a murderer, like if it was like someone who mur murdered your family, someone in your family or a friend, like then you'd be kind of like, yeah. But at the, I suppose overall, you'd be kind of thinking it's not a good road to go down. I think this is going to be controversial, but what I'm going to have to say, but you can't make exceptions. Either we allow for it or we don't allow for it. Oh, because if you start making exceptions for one thing, then this is going to lead to another thing. And it's certain things, okay, are not black and white. There is some in between <coughs> stuff. But like with this kind of stuff that we deal with, like DNA and, you know, looking into the most private part of who we are, it's either yes or no. You can't be like, oh, but he was like a serious murderer. Like, yeah, just get yeah. better at what you do and find out a way to get it done you know, yeah. in the legit way, not by picking up some cigarettes, butts and isolating <laughs> DNA. And, you know, I know this is probably not the popular opinion, but there are certain things in life, I think, that are black and white. Yeah. And this is one of these. Either we allow for something or we don't allow. 
Will it be interesting when, if this goes to another court case, will some of the methods be used, be questioned and like maybe thrown out or anything? Like, cause it's still super new. Like, like this first, yeah. the first known arrest and conviction is still only like, was it this year? So it's still crazy, like crazily new um, technology. So. But to finish off, yeah, Taggart, the detective, he says he doesn't regret it, that the suspect has pleaded guilty and he is confident that his community is safer and he has potentially saved a life because of this. So, yeah, guys, yeah. let us know what you think. Would you be happy with this? Let us know on Instagram uh, or email us at skepticallyinclined at gmail.com. Again, skeptically with a C. Yeah, yeah so it's, a, it's an interesting... That's a tough one. It's an interesting discussion and uh, it's not really black and white, really. And no, it's just something that we'll have to have to see how it how it unfolds, I suppose. Uh, I wonder if uh, I wonder if like the genetic materials and stuff like that, I wonder if that's being traded on the like, you know, dark web or something like that, where you just I don't mm. know what would people maybe people don't do it. What would be the use of it? Well, it's it can always be used in insurance, and uh, they're going to use that to like maybe screen screen for diseases and all this stuff, mm. and then they can like influence prices, and you're basically going to be priced out of it just because you were born with a disease. That's which is yeah. super unfair. But that's why I would never really give my DNA to anyone like submitted to one of these websites because yeah, like they say they won't allow it, but then you see it getting hacked. Then that's it. Like your yeah. information's out there, and um, well, but I the problem is, that. it's just like now, you you can't. There's no way of me. Like they can still track me based on like if my brother had done it, and it's just yeah. like super. I find it's like not. I I don't consent to it, but yet you're able to track it just because he had submitted it, and that's exactly yeah. It was just. It's just it's so a I bit... wanted to do that ancestry twenty three or whatever it's called, but now after like you are, you were already like opposite to this when I was talking to you the first time about this outside yeah. the podcast, and now you you lay out this story, so I'm I thinking like I'm gonna I'm not gonna do it. Yeah. <laughs> I think you convinced me not to do it ancestry twenty three or whatever yeah. it's called. I think then... I would um, I would I would just if I I only I don't know when I would do it maybe. We, uh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe Elon Musk might come up with a company that's safe and secure. And <laughs> do you know? Do you know what be a? Do you know what be a, an, a good idea? Well, if if you get, <laughs> but this is like way maybe like fifty, a hundred years into the future. If you get if you get CRISPRed and you just introduce point mutation in your genome, ha. that don't really you know one of these kind of mutations that they don't really cause any uh, physiological or pathologic any any physiological changes or any phenotypic changes. Just kind of this. Throw off, the, throw off the, the, yeah, the sample just to throw them off the sand like you know they thinking it's you but like then you have all of this out of nowhere snips and it's like okay well definitely yeah. not this guy this is <laughs> definitely something like biohackers would be gonna be looking into maybe. yeah 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 maybe well if someone is developing this or someone got idea from me speaking about this <laughs> i want the cut of the profit yeah try uh make a netflix show about it <laughs> yeah everybody gets a netflix show these days <laughs> yeah so yeah on that note uh that was that was my main headline so yeah thank you Evan. any any other comments but i think we've kind of discussed it pretty well 
Yeah, um, discuss it pretty well. I yeah. I can just tell that for the next time I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about the uh, diabetes. That was the second less uh, voted paper that I uh, post on Instagram. Yeah. So in two weeks there's gonna be something about diabetes. It wasn't really so your whole thing wasn't an option. It was just like I'm gonna do one or the other, and what one's gonna be sooner than the other. <laughs> Yeah, because I got I got input from some people and I uh, when they're like, oh, this diabetes look cool and uh, we would like to hear it. Because at the start, I was like, just disregard one paper and just focus on the one that's going to get more votes. But it was kind of a close split, like um, 55, 45, something like that. So I was like, OK, people were clearly interested in the diabetes one. And that saves me time for looking for another paper. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that's al- yeah. also nice. Yeah. Yeah, I still have to figure out what I'll do next, but hopefully okay. um, we'll try. I'll see how, if anything interesting has come out of COVID or will I try yeah. and look into something else new. Um, yeah. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Yeah, please get in contact if you have any weird or wonderful papers you want us to look at on Instagram, on Twitter, or email at the one, the email I've already mentioned again, skepticallyinclined at gmail.com. Stay skeptical, guys, and we'll talk yeah. to you on the next episode. Stay safe. Yeah, stay skeptical. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Bye.